0: We're closing in on the end of 2 Thessalonians. I'm going to read the last verses of chapter 3, starting at verse 11, going through verse 18, which is the last verse in 2 Thessalonians. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, starting at verse 11. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies, Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now, may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Back to when I was uh, thinking about verse 18... Uh, grace greater than our sin, the hymn came to mind. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Father God, you are gracious at your expense and to our benefit. I am grateful that you Love that you are merciful. I'm also grateful that you're honest and you speak truth. It is my prayer that you would speak to us today through your words from your scriptures. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 11 says, For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life. So there are many manifestations of an undisciplined life. I guess by now those of us who are adults know the reality of that. And if you've had children, you know that even more, especially if you've had teenagers. There are many manifestations of an undisciplined life. But Paul is addressing just two of them in this chapter. The first one is not working when you could and should work. And the second one is wasting the time that could be used for working to instead gossip or stick your nose into other people's business. It is my opinion that in older teens and adults, an undisciplined life is a chosen life. It's not just a chance or just the way you are. The reality is we have the ability to live a disciplined life, but we must choose such a life and then put forth the effort required to live that kind of life. And so to choose something other than a disciplined life is, in the end, to choose an undisciplined life. It's doubtful that any of us get up in the morning and decide we're going to sin today. Now I'm going to do this, and I'm going to make sure when I'm in this situation that I make this sinful choice. No, we don't. We get up in the morning... And we go through our morning routine and we start the day and something comes along and we move off the path of godliness and we sin. But it's also likely that we didn't get up that morning and say to ourselves, David, you know this is a weakness. You know that when this kind of a situation comes along you're likely to make the wrong choice. So today, you've got to go into it prepared to make the right choice. In my opinion, if I haven't done the second thing, then I haven't sinned by just chance. I've sinned by choice. Because I did not make the choice to not sin. I just got up and started going through my day and left it all to chance. When we choose an undisciplined life, we're choosing in my opinion, a lazy and irresponsible life. We're choosing to forsake self-control and instead we make our circumstances, our feelings, our fears, our desires, and our emotions the deciding factors in how we will live. Now, by the way, you don't have to live an undisciplined life totally. We can live it in compartments. We can live it in certain ways, in certain areas. So as we talk about this, listen to it that way. It doesn't mean we're totally undisciplined, but I could be undisciplined in areas. When we choose an undisciplined life, we are choosing to turn away from the kind of beliefs and values that motivate good, responsible, loving behavior. And we end up embracing beliefs and values that motivate selfish, undisciplined behavior. And we are choosing a life focused on going our own way and doing our own thing, regardless of the hurtful or harmful effects that it has on others. And there again, most of us don't get up in the morning and think about, you know, how is my behavior going to affect other people? I wonder if it hurts them, if it does damage to them, if it does damage to the relationship I have with them no, we just get up we start going through the day and things happen and we say something, we do something that's hurtful harmful, damaging but there again we can make a different choice not necessarily in the moment because if you don't prepare for the moment you're not likely to make a different choice in the moment We have the Olympics going on right now. And as we work through this teaching today, think of the Olympics, not what you'd like to be watching on TV right at the moment, but what's required for the people that are in the Olympics to actually be there. The kind of effort they've had to put forth, the kind of work they've had to put in, the kind of self discipline, self control, the kind of planning kind of purposeful living that is required just to make it to the Olympics, to be someone who's actually able to participate in them. The opposite of an undisciplined life is a disciplined life. And to live a disciplined life as a Christian it means we must choose beliefs and values that compel us, that motivate us, that encourage us to use self-control. We must set goals. We have to make plans. We have to establish routines. And we must focus our attention on accomplishing our goals so that we live a godly life that brings glory to God and a good reputation to Christianity. Here in verse 11 of Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Paul is pointing out that an undisciplined life is a wayward life, a life that is straying from the path of godliness. And that means it's an unchristian life. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian, but you're living an unchristian life. And in verse 13, Paul exhorts us to not grow weary of doing good. So we have those two sides. We have the undisciplined life and we have the doing good life, but we're exhorted not to grow weary, not to get tired of doing what is good. And when we put those two ideas together, the Christian life then is to be a disciplined life. It is to be a self-controlled, intentionally godly life. But that has to be by choice. We have to make those choices We have to make the plans to fulfill those choices. To help us see the amount of discipline and self-control required for living the Christian life, Paul likens it to an athlete training for the games. And it's probable that he was thinking of the Olympic Games, the Greek Games, which were the founders and then Paul also uses himself as an example of living the disciplined life. So I want to take us to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. These are verses that are good for all of us to memorize and ponder on a recurring basis. I have them on my wall right across from the type, uh, the, the keyboard for my computer. Do you not know that those who run in a race All run, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win, he says. Well, what does that require? What does it mean to run in such a way that you may win? It doesn't mean just on race day run in such a way that you may win. Certainly on race day you should do that. But if you don't go into race day well-prepared, To be able to run in order to win, you're going to be way in the back of the pack. So running in such a way to win isn't just running on race day. It includes all the preparation that is required to actually win, just like the athletes in the Olympics that are in the Winter Olympics right now. That's what is required, all of that. And then Paul says, everyone who competes in the games exercises what? Self-control. How often? In all things. You know, you, you can't go out and eat a McDonald's and be physically fit. You can't just take the day off and be prepared for the games. Every day is practice day. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, a temporary wreath. But we, an imperishable, an eternal wreath. What they get is only in this life. Yeah, they can have memories of the gold medal. They can tell stories about achieving it. Friends will know about it. Family members will pass these stories along. But when we run this race to win, when we discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness, this has good for eternity. It doesn't end in this life. It carries on into the next. And then in verse 26, Paul says, Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I don't know why he said it in this kind of confusing way, but he did. And he didn't ask me to edit it, uh, so, you know, I can't. But the point is, he isn't just running around helter-skelter. He's going someplace. He's, he knows where the end of the race is, and he's headed straight, as straight as can be, for the end. And he says, I box in such a way as not beating the air. In other words, he's not flailing, he's not throwing punches, He is aiming his punches. He's trying to connect. He's doing something with every punch he throws. It's purposeful. It's intentional. Well, how do you get good enough to do that? You have to practice. And then he says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. Why? Because... If your body is like my body, it doesn't want to be enslaved. It wants freedom. And the freedom it wants is not the kind of freedom that takes us towards God most often. It's the kind of freedom that takes us away from God. I buffet my body. He doesn't say, you know, I, I just exercise self-control. No, sometimes i got to buffet my body. i got to punch it now and then. i got to treat it pretty harshly. Make it my slave. Why? So that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. That's the kind of effort that Paul is exhorting, encouraging, pleading with us to to have. And I'm not saying you're not making any effort at all. Please don't hear it this way. This is the section we're in, and so I want to talk to you about it according to what Paul was trying to get across. But it takes some serious work to live a serious Christian life. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul is talking about living a disciplined Christian life in relation to just two areas, work and gossip. And by the way, gossip can be pretty destructive. You know, we might think of it as a fairly benign evil, but it isn't. It can damage people's reputations unnecessarily. I think one of the sad things in our culture is that we expect to be forgiven, but we don't want to give forgiveness. If somebody sinned 20 years ago and we could bring that sin forward and, and say he's no longer or she's no longer worthy to be doing what she's doing now, we'll do that. But we don't want somebody looking into our past and saying, hey, David did this 20 years ago, so he shouldn't be a minister. Trust me, the things I did 20 years ago, I shouldn't be a minister. But by the grace of God, there is forgiveness and there is transformation and there is change in life. Gossip doesn't always leave room for those changes. We tell stories about people. We like the excitement of people's evil behavior and passing those stories around. And We do harm to people with gossip. But today, as I've already been doing, I want to take the principles involved in a disciplined life and apply them to all of the Christian life. And Paul does this himself in advising Timothy when he told Timothy to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit. Temporary. But godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Also, in speaking of the nine fruits of the Spirit, I just want to point this out. Paul makes self-control the final one. Is that because self-control is the least important, or is it because self-control actually caps off the rest? What would the case be? Maybe self-control is the primary one we need for all the rest. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Reality is responsible Christian living requires discipline. It requires self-control. It requires an intentional focus on spiritual growth. It requires... Nurturing godly beliefs and values. It requires guarding our mind. It requires subduing our irrational fears, our anxieties, and our worldly desires. It requires that. I want to be clear about this. Self-discipline, self-control... It's not what makes us godly all by itself. We must have God's presence, His assistance, His empowerment, His indwelling Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and the body of Christ. We need these things just as much. In fact, we need God the most in order to change and be transformed. Yet in spite of what we have to have from God, which we do have if we are truly born-again believers. We also have to choose to intentionally, purposely, and continuously discipline ourselves for the sake of becoming and continuing to be what God wants us to be. We don't just become godly by chance. God does not just simply wave his hand over us and we're transformed. If you want to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, then I encourage you to actually take this test for the next six months every day. Say, God, conform me to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Work on me today. Change me today. And probably after about three months, you'll wish you never started praying that because so many things will come into your life that will challenge you and put you in the hot seat, so to speak you'll want relief. That's what's required to change. And so without God's part, we can't change. But without our part, we won't change. That's the reality of it. Paul tied these two parts together in Philippians chapter 2 where he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You have to do something And you should do it seriously and passionately, zealously. Then he says, it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is the two coming together. I think 2 Peter chapter 1 is a great chapter for helping us see the two sides that is required. Peter starts out by pointing out God's provision for us in order to live a godly life. In verses uh, 3-4, through he says, God's divine power has granted to us everything. Notice that word, everything, pertaining to life and godliness. But he doesn't stop there. He says that God has also granted us precious and magnificent promises. Here he's given us everything, but then he adds promises on top of that. So that we can become partakers of the divine nature. Imagine that. That is just an awesome statement in my opinion. But then in verses 5 through 7 he gives us a step by step process for spiritual growth. And this is the process that we have to engage in. We have to make happen. We have to get up each day and work out. So the question is Are you treating your own growth and godliness as if you're an athlete who is intentionally and purposefully exercising self-control, using self-discipline, following a plan, and training regularly in order to live the Christian life as God intends it to be lived? If you are, that is truly commendable. And if you aren't, then I want to urge you to consider what you could add or subtract from your daily routines. And routines are really helpful for spiritual growth. Go back to the early church fathers. Uh, there were two areas that many of the early Christians went to, to to grow spiritually. It was the Egyptian desert and the Syrian desert. And it was out of those movements that we got monasteries. What's the purpose of of these things. It isn't just to cloister people, it was to help them establish routines, daily routines that would help them grow in godliness. Routines are an important part of growing in godliness. Because that's how we run in such a way that we may win. Verse twelve of Second Thessalonians chapter three Now such persons we command and exhort The word command you already understand fully, I'm sure. But to exhort is to urge someone to specific action by using reason and logic. You know, most of the time we use reason and logic to win an argument or to resolve a conflict. But we're also encouraged to use reason and logic to encourage people to live a growing, maturing, better godly life or to set aside sinful behavior i buy into this completely and uh when people ask for help i use reason and logic the best examples i can give them uh the best explanation of god's word i can give them to at least help them see what the truth is they have to do something with it i can't do that for them but that's what it means to exhort to use reason and logic to call them to specific action. This is about a Christian work ethic, and I want to take a few minutes and talk about that. Because there is an importance to maintaining a Christian's work ethic as opposed to freeloading off of others or wasting time being a busybody. And... Again, I want to acknowledge that we don't really have that problem in our group. Everybody seems to work, seems to avoid unnecessary gossip. Hasn't always been that way with our fellowship, but it certainly seems to be that way today. That I want to acknowledge. And so though we do work to provide as we should, and we pretty much avoid gossip. At least I'm not aware that we don't avoid it. I do want to bring us to this part of the Christian work ethic, and that is, and apply this to our growth in Christianity. Do we waste time and energy in unprofitable things? Do we spend time and energy that could... And most probably should be used for more spiritually beneficial, eternally profitable things. Do we use that time in ways that is wasteful? Certainly had to look at that in my own life. One of the more common weaknesses that I run in among believers is the failure to set aside and protect the time needed to draw ever nearer to God. Going back to the idea of routines, it has been the practice among Protestants, at least, to get up in the morning and try to preserve some time to read and pray. And nowadays, you know, you can have an app on your phone and it can read to you, so you can be doing other things. You don't have to really be so focused. Uh, But that's about how many of us treat it. When I was a teenager growing up at the church I was raised in, this was promoted, and it was a good thing to promote. Please, I'm not discrediting this practice. But I am discrediting the casual use of the practice. And my conclusion back then was, you know, you might as well rub a lucky rabbit's foot because you're only reading your Bible and praying in hopes the day will go better. So just rub a lucky rabbit's foot and the day will probably go better just as much as if you read or prayed. I hesitate to say this, but I'm going to say it because I'm trying to make a point. I do not read my Bible and pray every morning. When I read, I want to read for purpose. I want to read with a specific intention in mind. Um, One of my children reads the Bible pretty prolifically, and I can ask him all kinds of questions, and he knows where it's found and what it says. For me, that doesn't work. When I read, I read a section for a reason. I read a chapter for a reason. I read a book for a reason, because I want to learn something specific. I'm at a place in my life that I need the Word of God to speak to that place. So whatever your reason is for reading the word of God, don't use it as a lucky rabbit's foot. Use it to grow spiritually. Yeah, you can read through the Bible in a year, but has it changed you? Has it touched you? Has it moved you? Has it motivated you? Has it spoken to you? Read with purpose. That's what I would encourage you to do. And the common weakness is people don't do that. They don't even take a lot of time to even read and pray in the morning. Why the routine in the morning? Because it helps you prepare for the day. That's the idea. It helps you actually take time, if you'll do it this way, to think out how your day is going to play out and how this scripture that you've been reading is going to apply to how your day is going to play out so you go into the day prepared, better prepared to remain godly in spite of the temptations and challenges that come your way. Verse 13. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. Do not grow tired of, do not become impatient with doing good. Why would you grow tired of doing good? Well, here's some thinking on my part. You know, we live in a world where sin is... More popular than righteousness. Where sinful ways and sinful means seem to make life easier and safer. Where sin- sinners seem to have all the fun. I mean, when I was growing up as a, as a teenager in the church, it was the sinners who were having fun. You know, I had to go to church. I had to sit through prayer meeting. Uh, we had to sit after dinner and read the Bible. Do you think that's fun? Come on, give me a break. It was the kids who had parents that didn't go to church. I mean, those kids were having fun. And we live in a world like that. Sinners seem to have all the fun. Christians, well, the reality is, fun has changed for me. We spent Friday night in a family's home just catching up talking about history that we've had together about the influence that we've had on each other's families about church god the scriptures i had a great time to me that was fun now when i was a kid that wouldn't have been fun that would have been boring to all get out i'll grant you that so it's easy to get tired of doing good. It's easy to become impatient with doing good because, you know, you're not having fun doing it, especially from a perspective that I had as a young person. The reality is living a godly life is hard work. You know, the uh, the, the skating seems to be the current thing that at least Barb and I, when we go to bed... We turn on the TV to catch the news and skating is on for the Olympics. So they get out there and skate. But just imagine the hard work they've put in just to be able to skate like that in that setting. How many times they've fallen. How many bruises their body has endured. How many times they've gone to bed wishing they had never gotten into skating. I mean, imagine this. The only reason they're there is because they stuck it out. The godly life is a hard life, often unappreciated. You know, how many people have come up to you and said, you know, I'm really glad you're so righteous, that you're so good, that you're so loving, you're so kind. It's not always appreciated. People just walk past you. I think this is one of the reasons many Christians start out running this race, the Christian life, with great zeal and end up walking or even sitting near the end of their life. We should have more zeal at the end than we had at the beginning. It should not be the other way around. Paul spoke to this very issue in Galatians chapter 6 verses 9 and 10. Let us not lose heart in doing good, he says, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are the household of the faith. Growing weary here doesn't mean just being tired. It means sitting down, giving up, pulling back. Verse 14 of Second Thessalonians chapter 3. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Do not regard him as an enemy. Do not regard him as someone who has turned against you to do you harm but admonish him, reprove, instruct, counsel gently, kindly and seriously admonish him as a brother, as a member of the family, even though he's a wayward member who needs discipline. So let me just give you a quick bit of history. This letter was not the first time the unruly believers, those Mm -hmm. who could work but were not working, This is not the first time that they had heard that if they could work, they should work. They were taught this when Paul was with them. So they heard it from the beginning, and then Paul left, went down to Corinth, and he sends a letter back. And they heard it in the letter. So this is the third time, there's weeks, months, in between, maybe years, I'm not sure. But there's time in between. So they heard it when they first heard the gospel and the church was being formed. They got the letter from Paul that reinforced this truth and they're still not working. In fact, they're just not that they're just not working. They're wasting the time talking about things they ought not to be talking about. So they were well acquainted with the Christian work ethic. They knew what was expected of them, but they weren't willing to do it. They didn't, hadn't yet made the choice to do it. And so the time for encouraging and urging right behavior was over. Now it was time for discipline. Those of us who are parents and have children, you know, they start out as babies are so cute and sweet and then they start growing up. And it took me a while to figure this out, but You know, we expect our kids to behave. And behave means we expect them to act better than we act with God. That's what behave means. They're they're to be perfect. You know, don't, don't mess my time up. Don't disturb me. Don't do this. Don't do that. Do this. Do that. And if they don't, you know, it's like the world is going to end and we lower the boom on them. Which is all well and good. You know, we should raise our children appropriately. But it came to me somewhere along the way that, you know, if our three boys were at least halfway sane by the time they reached 18, that would be really good. Because most people aren't grown up by the time they're 18. They're just beginning the process. There's a lot to learn after 18. So... And the other side of that was if I don't give God the kind of obedience that I expect my children to give me and we knew a family that practiced what was called first time obedience a wonderful idea but uh, not very practical in my opinion. Do you give God first time obedience? Why would you require that of your children then? And because we're insane that's why. Now, I'm not suggesting we should let our kids go undisciplined. This is not what this is about. But what I'm trying to help you see is that even Paul recognized, here, we've talked to you about this at this time. We brought it up at this time. You've had all this time in between to figure it out and to get your life straightened out. Now I'm saying it's no longer. there's no longer time for talking to you, pleading with you, urging you, explaining to you, Now we're going to have to discipline you. Do you see the difference between that and the first time they do it wrong, we discipline them? Now I realize he's dealing with adults, not little kids. So with little kids, we have the stick and the carrot. I understand that too. But as they become closer to teens and teenagers, reasoning, becomes a way to help them think to help them figure out why they should do what's right to help them come to some understanding of what their behavior does to others and it gives them an opportunity to get control of themselves our youngest and most of you are pretty familiar with him could uh, at the dinner table begin to make dinner just unpleasant and uh Not that he got up in the morning and planned that. That's just the way he was. So I would say to him, Stephen, you have to go to your room and you can come back whenever you're ready to do whatever the thing is that he should have been doing but wasn't. Now, I didn't care if he went to the room, turned around immediately and walked back. What I cared was, is that he learned how to manage himself. To me, that's what was important. Will he learn how to manage himself? So he could go to the room, turn around and come back. Now, if he didn't change, then we had this progression. He would go to the room for a certain amount of time, then he could come back. If he didn't change, it was longer the third time he was done. That was it. He's in the room for the rest of the night. But the goal was not just to get him to behave at the moment. The goal was to get him to learn how to manage himself so he would behave when I'm not around. So he would behave when he has his own family. So he would behave when he's an adult. That was the goal. So I think Paul had a goal here. He talked to them, he talked to them, and then he finally said, time's over for talking, now it's time for discipline. But the discipline was not because love was lost, or because they were no longer considered part of the family. The discipline was given for the purpose of getting their attention and calling them to do the right thing. I know it's already been 40 minutes. But I do want to finish with this. So give me two more minutes. Three more minutes. I want to take the idea of take special note of that person. And you can look at the notes to see what I had to say about that earlier. I won't cover that today, but I do want to cover it in this sense. According to Romans chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, it is the responsibility of the strong to help the weaker. And that's in the church. Now, I'm not saying we aren't doing this, please. This is only repeating something you already know just to encourage you on the way. Awareness of the needs, awareness of the emotional and mental state, awareness of the spiritual condition of those around you in this fellowship is important, it is essential. to helping one another, to being a family, to caring for one another, to reaching out to one another, to praying for one another, so that we not only meet physical needs, and we ought to try our best to meet those, but to also meet spiritual, emotional, and mental needs. And I don't mean you have to be mentally insane, but you can wrestle mentally with the challenges of life. You can get discouraged. You can get feeling hopeless and the rest of us need to be aware of that not just because you tell us but because we're taking note of you we want to take note of each other we want to be aware of each other yes this is my responsibility I bear it gladly but it's also your responsibility and on becoming aware of another's needs we ought to do what we can to support them as they go through a difficult time you know, Deanna is not just suffering physically. This is also something that affects her emotionally and mentally. We should be aware of that. We should find ways to care about that. Galatians 6.2 speaks of this as bearing one another's burdens. Because that's the way we love each other. Romans 12.15 speaks of this as weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. And Hebrews 12.12 speaks of this as strengthening the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. And why do we do this? Why do we care about Dorothy's situation? Why do we care about Carrie's daughter? Why do we care about what Kimmy is going through with the kidney situation? Because we love each other. That's why. We are a family. We love each other. And out of that love, we want to bring help, comfort, and encouragement. We want to ease each other's pain and suffering so that what you are going through will not be as bad as it could be without our support. And we want to encourage you to keep trusting in God. We want to encourage each other to keep trusting in God and relying on His goodness in spite of the suffering that is being endured.